the Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us now. Here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. Good to be with you today. We continue our study through the book of Romans. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the New Testament. And if you'll go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and uh, you'll find the book of Acts. And right after that, Paul's letter to the church and churches in Rome. We've made our way to chapter 2. And last time we were together, we left off at verse 5. So today we pick up with verse 6. But actually, we're going to kind of back up and uh, include those five verses we looked at last time to to kind of get a a whole picture of what Paul is saying in chapter 2 and in this portion of chapter 2. In the first three chapters of the book of Romans, Paul in his focus on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, he begins his focus on the good news of Jesus Christ by talking about the bad news. The first three chapters of Romans are really kind of tough. You have to kind of wade through this. There are great, wonderful passages that we find as our favorite, but most of us don't have a lot highlighted in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. These aren't our favorite verses. And I would just challenge you to hang with me because there is a temptation to just fly over this and look beyond. But I'm discovering something as as I'm spending time in the book of Romans. I'm discovering that what Paul tells us in the first three chapters are absolutely essential to understand what he's going to tell us in the rest of the letter. There's no accident that he begins here. Paul's going to say some things that are important throughout this letter. He's going to talk to us about walking in a relationship with God that is vibrant and victorious. But if you miss what he tells us in the first three chapters, then you'll never truly understand what it is to thrive in your walk with God. And I believe that the reason that many of us fight in our faith, we struggle praying that God gives us power and victory and and we just struggle every day. It's because we truly have not come to understand what Paul tells us about ourselves in the first three chapters. Because Paul is going to help us understand in the first three chapters that we are sinners separated from God. We deserve the wrath of God. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And get this, and there's nothing you can do about it. And Paul said, you've got to start there. You've got to understand that there is nothing good in me. Or you'll never walk in victory with God. I think the battles that we have with God is that sometimes we think we are strong. And we are good. And so we think we can make it on our own. And we struggle to live life in our power. And Paul wants us to come to the place where we recognize that, you know what? You only have one option. There's only one hope for you. 
And that is to totally give up and honestly say, God, apart from you, I am nothing. I can do nothing. And Paul says, when you come to the absolute end of yourself and you turn to say, God, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing good in me, nothing worthy of your love and grace. You're in a position to receive it and to walk in his power. And so these three chapters become critical for us. Though we have to wade our way through them and though he says things we don't want to hear, I think they are imperative. Now in chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, Paul begins to focus on the bad news. There are two kinds of people in the church there at Rome and they were struggling and and they're identified as Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles primarily being a group of people within the church who have no church background at all. They grew up in a pagan world, so they don't know anything. And then there are Jews who were religious, grew up in religious circles. Now, the best way for you to understand what Paul is saying in these three chapters is to recognize whenever he says Jew, just insert the word religious people. Because these words apply to us. Because those of us in this room primarily are the religious people that Paul is talking about when he addresses the Jews. And he begins by talking about those that are pagan within the church or uh, those that maybe have never made a commitment of their life to Christ. Paul says, everyone, those that are pagan and far from God are under the wrath of God. Well, we know that. And beginning with verse 18 in chapter 1, Paul kind of tells us what we as religious people already know. And that is that those people out there, those people that don't love God, don't trust God, don't believe in God, those non-Christian sinner people, he says, Paul said they have exchanged the truth for a lie. And we talked about what it means to exchange. You take that ugly shirt your grandmother gets you at Christmas and you exchange it. What it literally means is I take what someone else wanted for me and I exchange it for what I want myself. And Paul said that those that are far from God, as God revealed himself to them, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They said, I don't want what you have for me. I don't want your way. I want what I want. And I reject you and I turn. And as a process of that rejection, God says, okay, if that is your choice, my wrath will be demonstrated on you in that I will allow you to suffer the consequences for your actions. If that's what you want, then okay. And then when he comes to chapter 2, he turns his attention from those people out there that are sinners. And he recognizes that all of us are saying, you tell them, Paul, because they are sinners and they have exchanged the truth for a lie and they are doing all kinds of horrible things. And amen. And Paul knew you would say that. So in chapter 2, he starts by saying, now you. And the focus turns now to the religious people within the church. And he actually, in this text, 
talks about the wrath of God and, and, and he, he speaks to the judgment of God by allowing us to recognize that there are four aspects to God's judgment that every one of us face. Now, it's important that we know this because we're quick to think that those that are out there, they, they are under the judgment of God. But Paul says, no, 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 no. There are four aspects of God's judgment that we all face. And that's what he does in this text. So let's read through very quickly and we'll kind of back up and talk about a couple of things that we learned last week, but then set the stage for what he says in verse 6 forward to verse 17 in our verse 16 in the text before us. So just for the context, let's begin with verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or, or do you think lightly of his, the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience and do not know that the kindness of God leads us to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul that does evil, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now, we sometimes wade through those verses in order to get to some of the better stuff in the book of Romans. But Paul is saying something really important for us here. He's, he's highlighting the judgment of God that, that is upon us all sin, whether it resides in the heart of a person who is far from God or it resides in the heart of a person who is religious. God 
judges sin. Now there are four aspects of his judgment that he, that he recognizes in the text before us. First of all, he, he talks about the fact that the judgment of God is indisputable. You are, he says in verse 1, without excuse. You judge others, he says, but the judgment of God is on you. In fact, we talked about this a little bit last week, but to kind of sum it up, I would say it this way. Paul says, here's the problem with religious people. We have a tendency to look at other people in their sin and think that we are better than they are. We look at the rest of the world in, in judgment and cast an eye downward toward them as if we are up here and they are down there. What Paul is helping us understand is this reality. Our sin looks worse on other people. Have you noticed that? Other people can sin and it looks really bad. And I recognize it. And it's wrong and it's horrible and it's an abomination to God and I can stand in judgment. But guess what? I can do the same thing and it doesn't quite look as bad. Somehow I make an excuse for my sin. Somehow uh, I, I, I recognize there's a reason for what happens when I do that. Or I, I always seem to, to recognize that my sin looks worse on somebody else. And Paul says, you stand in judgment of other people. And the very fact that you look down at other people means that God's judgment is levied against you. Why? Because if you judge others, the very fact that you judge others means that you believe there is a God who is holy. You believe there is a standard that they have violated. You believe that sin deserves the wrath and punishment of God or you would never stand in judgment. And Paul says the very fact that you believe there is a holy God and the fact that you believe he has a standard and the fact that you believe that sin, when we break the standard of God, it is sin and worthy of wrath, the very fact that you know that means you are accountable to God for your sin. And so he leads us to recognize that the judgment of God is indisputable. Now it's important for us to remember whenever we try to look down our nose at other people who are really horrible, and there are a lot of them in this world, right? And we can label them with all kinds of words. And, and, and you know those people I'm talking about out there that, that, that disregard God and the laws of God. I mean, Paul gives us a list of them beginning with verse 18 of chapter 1. But Paul says it's important for you to understand this. Don't lose sight of the fact that your sin, you, not, not, not those people, you, your sin, is so bad in the eyes of God that the only way that God's wrath could be satisfied and his judgment met 
was that his son Jesus would have to come and live a sinless life and be beaten to the point that no one would recognize him, hung on a cross to die and suffer in your place. Your sin did that. Not somebody else's. You. Your sin is so bad that God looked at it and said, the only answer for your sin is for Jesus to die in your place, to be a substitute for you. His judgment is indisputable. Now, secondly, in the text before us, we de developed that more last week. Secondly, he says, his judgment is inescapable. Everyone will face the judgment of God. Paul says, the problem is that many of you who stand in judgment of others and many of you religious people, you think you're okay with God because nothing bad has happened to you. I mean, you're healthy, things are going good. I mean, it could be better, but, but I'm, I'm okay. And I know that I've sinned, and, and sometimes I really wonder about the consequences of sin because I've done some things that God told me not to do, and I've not really suffered any consequences for those sins. I mean, it's absolutely possible that we sin and disobey God and disregard God's law, and nothing really happens to us. And we know that because that's true of everybody in this room, even this week, right? Whenever we sin, we don't immediately feel the wrath of God. And so sometimes we begin to think, because we're religious, that God's okay with me. Somehow I'm okay. Somehow when I disobey God, it's okay. He excuses me. He recognizes that I'm not perfect. God understands the challenges that I face. And even though I'm not perfect and I cannot be perfect because God understands that, he makes exceptions for me and he overlooks the things that I've done. And Paul said, I want to tell you something. Listen to me. Every one of us will stand under the judgment of God and no one escapes. And he says, the problem is some of you in the church have confused the kindness of God and the fact that God has withheld punishment for our sin, we have somehow interpreted that as if God is okay with me. And Paul said, no, no, listen. The reason that God has withheld punishment for our sin it is to bring you to repentance. It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. God ultimately says, I'm going to wait because I want you to come back to me and recognize, God, I have sinned. I've failed. I've messed up. I'm sorry. I repent. I turn from my sin so that we can restore that relationship with you. And Paul said the kindness and the goodness of God is, is given to us so that we can be brought to a place of repentance. Common grace is not the same thing as saving grace. Common grace is the goodness of God. The Bible says that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. He causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust alike. God blesses every person irregardless of the fact that they are 
his or not. You can reject God and you still live in the goodness of God's common grace. Why is God gracious and kind to people that reject him and turn their back on him? Because it is in the kindness of God that he brings us to himself. It is in that common grace that we are brought to recognize that there is a saving grace that I need, that God is a good God and a loving God and a gracious God, and I am a sinner separated from God, and I need him, and I come to him. It's like that prodigal son we talked about last week who came to his senses when he was in the foreign country and said to himself, my father has servants that have more than enough food, and here I am starving to death. You know what happened? In that foreign country, he began to recognize dad's not a bad guy. I'd made him out to be a bad guy, but when I stopped to think about it, he's actually a good man, and he has a good heart, and he's good to others, and it was the goodness of the father that brought the son back. The son came back because he knew that the father was good and that the father might receive him as a servant. And we know the story of how the father received him not as a servant but as a son. The judgment of God is inescapable. It's indisputable and it's inescapable. You will be judged. You're going to face the wrath of God. No way around it. Paul said, we don't like hearing that. We like to pretend that's not true. But understanding that makes all the difference in the world. Now, the third thing that he says is he gets into the text that we've not looked at. In 7 down through verse 10, he says, I also want you to know that the, 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 the judgment of God is inflexible. It's inflexible. In that passage of scripture, he says, you are not saved by works. You are saved by God's grace. You don't earn salvation. You you don't become a Christian because of what you do or because of the life you live or the good things that happen. But listen to me, and, and we don't say this very often. We don't become Christians by good works, but we're judged based on good works or our works. We're we're judged based on our behavior. Everyone is judged by them. Justification, that's a word that we use sometimes. Justification, I, I could, if you break it down, you can kind of understand it. Justification means that, that in my relationship with God, he sees me just as if I've never sinned. To be justified means just as if I've never sinned. The only way that I can have a relationship with God is to deal with my sin. And God dealt with my sin on the cross in the person of Jesus. So when I ask God to forgive me of my sin, Jesus paid the price for my sin. And God looks at me because of the payment made for my sin by Jesus. He looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. I've been justified by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and my faith in him. So I am saved. I know that I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did for me. That is justification. But judgment is based on works. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But listen, faith 
in God is never alone. It's always accompanied by works, by behavior. James said it this way, faith without works is dead. Here's the issue. The issue is not faith versus works. The issue is hypocrisy versus truth. The issue is that the religious people Paul is addressing, who includes me and you, have a tendency to be hypocritical in that we talk a good talk, but our life doesn't match what we say. We've got all the answers. We know the Sunday school answer to everything. But on Monday, when we're at work and when we're at school, our life doesn't give evidence of what we know. And ultimately what he is saying in the text before us is that, that, that religious people are often boast of how good they are when God knows their heart. In fact, it was interesting, a well-known writer from atheist circles said that the number one reason people are atheists is because of Christians. <laughs> it's because they see an inconsistency in the way we live our life. And, and you know what Paul says? What you do matters. If you are a child of God, it becomes evident when God lives in me and lives through me, the, the life that I live will be different. Now, I want you to understand when I say that because we get confused and we say, but Pastor, I'm not perfect and, and, and I know I'm not where I need to be and we beat up on ourselves. Listen, when, when Paul talks about these, he's not talking about the perfection of your life. He's talking about the direction of your life. I am not perfect. I mess up every single day. I've been walking with God for years. I've been a pastor for over 40 years. I still don't have this down. I messed up this week. I'm going to mess up next week. It's not the perfection of my life that matters. It's the direction. And I will have to tell you that the thing that distinguishes us from others is that when I do mess up, I know it. And it, and it bothers me and it breaks my heart and I'm able to confess it and repent of it in turn. And the direction of my life is always to turn toward him and what he wants. Paul said, you guys need to really do a serious assessment of yourself. You're spending so much time looking at everybody else that you're going to miss what God has for you. And I want you to understand something. He makes very clear in the text before us that, hey guys, listen to me. God's judgment's indisputable. It is inescapable. It's inflexible. And then finally he says, God's judgment's impartial. And this is another important truth for us in religious circles. What he's saying is this, and I want you to listen to me. God has no favorites. 
Sometimes you, you look at a pastor as if, well, God, you know, he must be a favored child. God speaks to him and doesn't speak to me, and he has a relationship with God. You know what? There's not anything about the relationship I have with God that, that, that is special to me. There, there's nothing that God gives me that he wouldn't give you. He has no favorites. There's nothing that God gives you that he wouldn't work in my life to provide. He has no favorites. Now, this, this was a huge surprise to the religious people in the church where Paul's writing. Because the Jewish people of that day believed that they were special. And they expected and actually counted on being treated special by God. They believe that when they die, God's going to check the role, and just because they're Jews, they're going to heaven. Just because of their heritage, they're going to heaven. That they are the favored ones of God. And here Paul comes along to say, listen, you are God's chosen people, and I know that you believe judgment for you will be different, and guess what? It will be different for you, but not like you think. Judgment for you, religious people, is going to be different because God's going to hold you accountable at a higher level because you know things that other people don't know. And he has revealed himself to you. And because he has, he holds us accountable at a greater level. Paul said we're going to be treated differently as we're held at a higher standard because we've been given more and more of us will be required. There's no points for the church stuff we do. God's not impressed by how often you come to church. He's not impressed by how much money you give. He's not impressed. But he, he is, no favorites. God's judgment falls the bottom line is that he doesn't treat anyone unfairly and treats no one with favoritism. So that no one has an excuse. No one has an advantage. And everyone will be judged by God. On that day, he says in verse 16, when God judges. So here's the question I have. Why does Paul spend so much time here talking about how bad we are? Why does he spend so much time saying, you are a sinner? Don't ever lose sight of that. Don't ever think you're better than other people. Why does he constantly do that? I think it's because he knows that every one of us in this room will struggle to believe it. Jesus said in John chapter 14, speaking to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And you know what I've discovered? Though most of us in this room would give a hearty amen to that, I would ask you this question. Really? Do you honestly believe Jesus is the only way? Do you really believe that there is no other way? See, see we, we struggle. There's something deep in us that thinks somehow we can earn it. I had an encounter years ago 
with this sweet lady in the life of our church. She'd been a member of our church. She was so faithful, loved God, grown up in church, knew the Bible. She was just a dear saint. Her husband never came. He didn't want anything to do with the church. He didn't mind her going. He supported her and he let her come, but he just, he had no part of that. Kids were involved in church, but he didn't want anything to do with it. I remember that night when I got the phone call from her in the middle of the night that her husband had died suddenly of a heart attack. And I got dressed and drove to her house. I got there as the police were there and the EMS was there and just racked with grief and loss. A, a loss that I've discovered in over 40 years of pastoring, I can't even comprehend. I've never been there and trying to offer comfort to us. But she said something to me that stuck. She said, Pastor, my husband was a good man. He was a loving husband. He was a great father, a loving father. He was a good provider. You couldn't have found a better man on the planet than him. And somehow, I just believe deep down inside, I just can't believe that he's not in heaven. I think he is. I know he never accepted Jesus as we understand it, but I just believe that somehow, God made a way for him. You see, the reality is, Paul says, I can tell you this stuff, but in the thick of the battle, most of us act like we don't believe it. Is Jesus the only way or not? You see, there is something deep in the heart of every man. Paul is saying that there's something deep in the heart of every man that validates the gospel. Do you realize in the imagination of men and women for hundreds of years, men and women who have written books that we read that have become classics, books that have become movies, even recent movies, there seems to be a gospel theme. There seems always to be a good guy and a bad guy. Every good story. There always seems to be someone in need who cannot get out of the situation they're in and they desperately need a savior. And some of the stories born in the imagination of people there's even prophecy that foretells there is one coming who will redeem you, whether it's the Matrix or any other superhero movie. There's something deep in us that says, I know I can't do it on my own. I need a savior. And that gospel planted in our heart is our invitation to receive that Savior, Jesus, and walk in him. So here's the challenge to you if you're a believer, if you've accepted Christ. 
Paul is saying to you, you have nothing in you that will make you successful in life. You desperately need him. Die to self so that he can live in you. Quit fighting with him. Quit thinking that you've got it under control and come to the place where you admit, God, I give up. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Live through me. I can't stand in judgment of another person because I've got too many issues in my own life. I just ask that you would forgive me, restore me, bring me back to where I need to be. But if you're here and have never accepted Christ, maybe God has spoken the gospel in your heart and in your own imagination, you just know there's good and evil and I can't fix it. I need a savior. You just instinctively know that. And it's because God has revealed that to you. And he has revealed to you even today, right now, that he is the Savior so that you, by faith, can receive him. Father, I thank you for the message you've given us today. I thank you that, that we can stop long enough to look at this. This is not fun stuff. This is not the kind of stuff that we want to read every day, not the kind of stuff we want to talk about, not the kind of stuff that we can advertise and everybody wants to come running to hear. But it's what we need to hear. This isn't just the first step to salvation to recognize that we're a sinner needing salvation. It's the foundation of our Christian life as we begin to yield to you and your power and grace. So for those that are here and those that are listening that have never accepted Jesus, may this be the moment that they do that. And for those that know you, may this be the day that they say, God, my life, actions don't measure up with what I say and I need to repent. And in the kindness of your grace, I come to repent, to turn from that to you and ask that you restore me in right fellowship. I desperately need you. May that happen in these moments in Jesus' name. As God speaks to you in this moment, would you just allow him to take whatever part of what we've talked about together today that needs to be applied to your life and touch you. It may be that you need to come and receive Jesus as Savior. It may be that you just need someone to pray with you as you find victory over certain areas in your life. Whatever your need as this song plays, you make that decision. I'll stand here, would love the opportunity to pray with you about that as we give opportunity. Everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry. Send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported.
financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.